Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. My name is Lori Flores. I'm the host for this podcast episode. And today I'm really happy to be talking with Sarah Wald, the author of The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship, and Farming Since the Dust Bowl, which is just a brand new out of the University of Washington Press. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi, how's it going? It's going well. It's beautiful June out here in Oregon. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's, um, I'm sure, not as beautiful in Brooklyn as it is over there. But uh, yeah, beautiful summer evening, afternoon for you on the West Coast. And I'm so happy you can talk with us today about your book. Yes, I'm excited to be here and to get to talk to you about this book. Great. Um, So why don't we start out with just getting a little bit of information about you. So um, would you give us just a little bit of info on your background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? What um, were sort of like the big influences in your life and career that brought you to the position you are now? Right. So I grew up in a combination of Torrance, California and Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, So I did do most of my public schooling in California, which probably ended up influencing my direction of my research in terms of writing my first book about California. But I went to undergraduate at Reed College in Oregon. It was my first time in Oregon, and I fell in love with the state and a lot of the ecosystems around here, um, which is why I was so thrilled to be able to come back here for my current job. Uh, One thing about my research is that I'm an American Studies scholar. Um, I really think of American Studies as my methodology and as my intellectual genealogy, and I did my undergraduate degree in American studies as well as my graduate degree. So I got interested in American studies um, quite early in my um, intellectual process. And within American studies, I got very interested in questions of coalition building and comparative ethnic studies. I was an undergraduate during the WTO protests in Seattle, which, uh, as you can, you might imagine, the Reed College students were quite involved in getting out to the, the protests. And one of the slogans there were Teamsters and Turtles Together at Last. And <laughs> as an undergraduate, this fascinated me because the assumption behind it, of course, is that unions and environmentalists are at odds. Um, and it really got me interested in why do we assume that labor and environment don't go hand in hand? What's undergirding those assumptions, um, which really put me on the path of then thinking about questions, not just about labor in the environment, but about race labor in the environment, um, which became my focus in graduate school and really led to my interest in this project around race, citizenship, and nature in agriculture and led me into a, a set of jobs that really brought together cultural studies and environmental studies with ethnic studies. So my current position at the University of Oregon, I am an assistant professor of English and environmental studies, and I'm participating faculty with both the Food Studies Project uh, program and the ethnic studies um, at University of Oregon. And so my American studies background has really allowed me to think about these different connections between fields and between different kinds of identities and how we sort of categorize intellectual questions separately and what happens when we bring them together. Yeah, I think that's so cool that your work, um, because it crosses so many different fields and your scholarship can appeal to so many different 
people working in various um, fields of inquiry, I like that you found a job and a university that recognizes and has placed you um, at the intersection of a lot of different disciplines. I think that's so great. I feel really fortunate to be at the University of Oregon because, of course, there's a long history at University of Oregon of environmental studies, but particularly of environmental literary studies as well. Um, and so, and there's a growing cohort of people doing work at the intersections of environmental studies and critical race theory at University of Oregon. And so to be in that intellectual environment with so many other scholars thinking through these kinds of questions has been really exciting and fruitful for me. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, you walked into a bookstore, so this is like the fantasy, right? We all walk into a bookstore hoping to see our book on a shelf. So how would you categorize your book if it's, and we'll talk about, you know, all the different ways that it is an interdisciplinary work, but how would you characterize your own book in terms of field? Like where would you find it in a bookstore under what category or, you know, multiple categories? What would you want this book to be recognized as? The three places that I'd like to see the book that are most important to me would be to see it under environmental studies, particularly for people. I want people who are interested in the history of the environmental movement and are interested in how we can build a more inclusive, diverse environmental movement that reckons with um, the problematic history of sort of mainstream environmentalism in the U.S. to be able to find the book and people who are interested in environmental justice to find the book. The second place I'd really want to see the book is under food studies and agriculture because it does deal with agricultural history and agricultural labor in a way that I think is really important to the food movement um, and people involved and invested in the food movement and in food studies, um, which are somewhat distinct categories of really, I think, uh, would find an interest in this book. And the third place that I'd like to see this is um, as a comparative ethnic studies project that's really thinking through the relationships um, between groups that are often studied distinctly and using questions around citizenship, immigration, and labor to think about uh, Filipino workers in the field alongside Mexican workers, alongside Japanese workers, and start to tell a different story about how we understand the relationship between race and citizenship. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's go back to the title. I want to talk about the title. So the nature of California, race, citizenship, and farming since the Dust Bowl. So why California and why title it the nature of California? Can you talk a little bit about the title? California is a place, a state that has a larger than life mythology and in many ways has taken a lot of the go West ideologies as, uh, and brought them to, um, into bear with the sort of Edenic set of myths. So you have this idea of the West of the place of fortune, but you also have this idea of the bounty of California's fields as sort of the blessing on, um, that the sort of visible manifestation of the blessing of manifest destiny. Um, and because of that, California has this particular pool in the national mythology, but it also has a long history of being used to pull out the rug on that mythology from the Great Depression um, in works like The Grapes of Wrath. But even continually, there's this idea of, there's sets of works like T.C. Boyle's the tortilla curtain that's interested in the juxtaposition of these two ideas of California. 
the wealth and the bounty, but also of the dispossession and inequality. And so that makes California a really interesting place to study questions of American identity and ideas about what national identity and the nation state mean in uh, 20th and 21st century American thought. Um, but that's not the only thing that makes California really interesting to me as a place. As someone who's interested in comparative ethnic studies, California is a place where you find a range of different groups immigrating at different times with different histories um, and a relationship to not only U.S. colonialism, but Spanish colonialism and continued um, presence of indigenous peoples in California. So as a place to study, it's really um, interesting for all of those points of connection and also for the rich textual history that exists in the state. Um, so I'm interested in California for those two. The title, The Nature of California, is playing on two ideas about nature. One is the sense, when we say something, when we say the nature of something, we often mean some sort of inherent identity. Then I'm interested in the book and the ways in which particular understandings of race and citizenship are naturalized, are seen as inherent, or are seen as outside of the human and always already there. And so what the book in some ways is doing is denaturalizing some of the ideologies at work and representations of California agriculture. So that's part of what I mean by nature. But I'm also really interested in ecosystems and in representations of ecosystems and the question of pesticides, the question of environmental harm. So I also like having nature in the title because it calls out not just nature in terms of naturalized identities or naturalized ideologies, but in terms of a more than human world that interacts with the human world that is co-constitutive with it. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, you know, California has been, like you said, a part of all of these, um, national myths about this is a place to be discovered. It's a place to move to. It's a place to start over to recreate yourself or create a new life. But we can't forget that people were already populating um, this quote wilderness. And I love this line in the book where you sort of say wilderness had to be de-peopled before it could serve as a marker uh, of a place unaltered by humans. You know, it, it, it had to be remade as wilderness, um, but that required a, a certain dispossession, marginalization, conquest, and even um, death of a lot of people who were there beforehand. Yeah, and that, that set of ideologies, that settler colonial logic, exists in our ideas of California as having this great agricultural bounty, because a lot of the images of California is this question of whether the farms are too large or should they be smaller? Um, how do the, how do we get to have these large factories in the field, which oftentimes comes down to questions of land ownership and the question of, is there quote unquote free land for settlers? Um, which relies on the erasing a native past, um, and erasing native peoples. And so when you look at the debates in the 1930s over whether or not you, you're going to go with John Steinbeck's vision of California agriculture or whether you're going to go with the Associated Farmers and Ruth Comfort Mitchell's vision of agriculture in California. In both of those visions, a real native claim to the land is erased. It's based on this question of whether the land has been unfairly taken away from people like the Jones or 
whether people like the Jones still have an opportunity if they would only work hard enough to become farm owners. But it, very rarely in these texts do you see a recognition that this land is not just free, empty land that for the taking. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's only certain people who have this, you know, what you call agricultural citizenship, right? It's only reserved for a certain group of people very closely tied in with um, the the ones who racially belong in the United States. It, would that be fair to say? Yes. I think that we talk about um, citizenship in this country as something that is very racialized and has a long history of, of being anxiety around sort of what's perceived as a pollution of the national body through racial others. And we have a history of talking about um, in within academia of recognizing whiteness as a form of property, but there's a, the form of property of land ownership is really at the root of a lot of these relationships uh, among things like race and citizenship and how it gets articulated through agricultural discourse building on uh, Jeffersonian ideology, where being a landowner, being the sort of human farmer is what sets you apart from being the um, non-citizen, being someone who's sort of deemed as slave labor. And so land ownership, I think we often don't recognize as much as we could how central it is to a lot of our other thoughts about race, citizenship, um, and immigration. Mm-hmm. And belonging and power, right? I mean, that's like from the very beginning from, um, yeah, the Jeffersonian era, uh, which brings me to ask you about chapter one. What I'd like to do is kind of go through your chapters to give listeners a sense of how you've structured this work. So um, your first chapter, you do talk about this Jeffersonian agrarianism or this kind of romantic idea we have of the American farmer. Where do you think that romanticization came from? How did it begin? And why are we so still idealizing this figure of the American farmer and who is fitting that profile and who is left out of that profile? I, you know, I think the vision of the American farmer has changed in certain ways um, in that I think we now see the American farmer as having an environmental consciousness that we did was not there in a Jeffersonian time, but the original I mean, the sort of Jeffersonian articulation of the farmer was somebody who was politically independent. They were economically independent, which led them to political independence, which led them to self-sufficiency. And when you talk about the ideology of the frontier, it's not just about going west and getting land, but about then um, cultivating that land and turning it into this um, ideal agricultural landscape. And so when you have an anxiety about the closing of the frontier, you also have um, anxieties that come up a little bit later with um, the movement of people into urban areas about the loss of of farmland. Um, And so when you look at what's happening in the Great Depression, you have, and the sort of representation of the Dust Bowl migration, which wasn't just that there was suddenly this influx of people. I mean, there had been migration towards California from those areas beforehand, it wasn't a huge change in the number of people, but what got seen in the popular representation was anxieties about this loss of American identity through the loss of, of the farmer and this need to sort of reassert the farmer as a way of reasserting um, a certain kind of American mythology about 
being able to work your way up, become the farmer, right? This sort of is the agricultural ladder lost for white men in America um, was the anxiety that gets pushed through a lot of these Great Depression stories. When you have an anxiety about the loss of agriculture today, I think you still have that, but there's a way in which agriculture and, you know, and Jefferson, Jefferson's writing against this idea of having an industrial nation, right? That what we need is farms, not factories. But the farm today and the family farmer today is not put against um, the factory, but against the factory farm. And so that it becomes a battle for the soul of uh, American um, food production and becomes about questions of local control and sovereignty and um a certain kind of environmentalism that really wasn't there in pre-20th century articulations that you can sort of see it developing over time, but it's not, it's, it's a big shift in our understanding of the farmer. Mm-hmm. And but I would say we, we still, we still have a very racialized understanding of the difference between the farmer and the farm worker, right? We still have this nostalgic idea of, of the farmer. Um, and it's not just a nostalgic idea. There's been, a history of land regulations and federal subsidies um, that have kept um, more white farmers on their land than uh, more white male farmers on the land. Um, so I'm thinking of the Pigford case where there's kind of discrimination against um, African-American farmers on being able to get the subsidies to keep their, their farmlands. So um, there's both this ideological representation that's weighted about who's the farmer and who's the, sort of necessary laborer who doesn't really get citizenship, um, substantive citizenship. But there's also a real history of regulation that brings that into reality. Mm -hmm. And the writer who became most famous for articulating um, this idea and this phrase factories in the field was Carrie McWilliams. And, you know, the first chapter of your book um, takes on factories in the field as a piece of literature to be critiqued. And um, I think that this will be interesting to people who know McWilliams for his activism, who know him for his um, writing on justice for um, workers or justice for um certain racial minorities in America. He was writing during, you know, the great depression becomes a really known, a well-known intellectual. Um, But you sort of take him on, you take on factories in the field and you critique it um, in ways that I think will be new and interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about your critique? Yes. Um, So I want to say first that I have a lot of admiration for Carrie McWilliams. I think that he, I admire the work he did. I admire the ways that he was involved in a lot of the political projects that he was involved in and didn't keep his activism just to the writing of books um, or to the court cases he pursued, but really was willing to become the public face of a lot of the issues he worked on and also worked tirelessly on a number of committees. And that was what made reading factories in the field um, such a surprising experience to me because when I, I reread Factories in the Field while reading a lot of right-wing responses to the Grapes of Wrath, which were often just as much right-wing responses to Factories in the Field since they were published very close together, um, and Steinbeck sort of hit out a lot, and Karen McWilliams was the one who was going to be on the radio talking about it, um, was chairing um, the Steinbeck Committee to Aid Agricultural Workers. 
But what you see in the book is, uh, is a way in which the book really sets up the, the problem of land ownership in California is the problem of white U.S. citizens coming to California unable to get land and the way in which land has been distributed unequally. And the solution it sets up is collective ownership of land, but in a way that sets up white settlers as the, the sort of new owners of this land. Um, and although the book is really attentive in its details to these histories of Japanese farm workers, Mexican farm workers, Japanese farmers, um, Filipino workers, the vision it identifies with is a vision of white land ownership. And it sees a sort of past of these workers, these ethnic communities, these communities of color that were oppressed, that were sort of unable to escape. And then this sort of possibility of white workers um, taking on the land in a way that what it shares in common with works like Ruth Comfort Mitchell's Human Kindness, um, who's a right-wing author um, of the time, Sympathetic, the Associated Farmers, is this idea that white citizens deserve land. Um, and it's a jarring book to read within McWilliams' larger political context because it doesn't jive with what we know about McWilliams. And um, I have two explanations for that. Um, uh, one, I think we forget to put McWilliams in his own context. So when McWilliams talks about his racial revolution, he puts it in the 1940s. He writes Factories in the Field in 1939, and then he writes Ill Fares the Land, and where he extends his research from California across the nation. And it's there that he really starts thinking differently about race in that transition from Factories in the Field to Ill Fares the Land, so that you actually can trace a more nuanced understanding of race in his writings in the 1940s than you see in his earlier writings in the 1930s, so that there's some ticks from factories in the field that you also see in his nation articles that he's publishing in the 30s that disappear by the articles he's publishing in the 40s. So that's part of what's going on. The, the other thing that's going on, though, is this ideology of California agriculture. So where you don't see those ticks in his writings in the 1930s is when he's not writing about agriculture. They come up when he starts talking about farming and that there's something about this ideology of the American farmer um, that structures factories in this field in very um, implicit ways, setting up this division between white farm workers who are migrants from the Dust Bowl in the this story McWilliams tells us and all these other non-white workers that he links together um, as somehow an impediment to collective ownership and unionization. Uh, so that his book in some ways is more fascinating than some of the right-wing books because it helps us see the limitations of certain ideologies on the left that were explicitly anti-racist and yet still getting hung up on this American agricultural fantasy. Um, so I think that those two things are happening simultaneously for McWilliams and shape factories in the field to be a really different work than we might expect knowing his full biography and um, all of his amazing activism that really starts, you know, in this period and continues on. Mm -hmm. So you pair Carrie McWilliams along with Ruth Comfort Mitchell in chapter one, and then in a succeeding chapter, you kind of juxtapose uh, Steinbeck with this author, Sonora Babb, who I had heard of, but didn't really know too much about. And I was really fascinated 
um, by her story. Can you tell us a little bit about how her work converged and diverged with Steinbeck's? Yes. So if the first chapter is thinking about the relationship between McWilliams as a figure of um, the popular front against a sort of right-wing ideology and thinking about the similarities that we might not always recognize, the second chapter is juxtaposing um, two different pieces of the popular front that are often collapsed, thinking about Steinbeck and his own relationship to New Deal politics and Sonora Babb, who is, um, you know, at this point, a member of the Communist Party. And Babb writes this book um, that is supposed to come out right before factor, uh, right before Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath comes out. And it's pulled when The Grapes of Wrath hits because the publisher believes the market's not going to hold two books of this um, so similar grain. Uh, what's, one of the things that's really interesting is the books are quite similar in certain facets of their plot and um, there is uh, some evidence that St- uh, Bab's notes actually ended up in Steinbeck's hands. Um, so if you look at some of the work that uh, Douglas Wixon has done on Bab, um, as well as Aaron Batot, that there's um, Bab is working for the for what becomes the government camp in Steinbeck's novel and is asked to show her notes to a novelist, probably Steinbeck. And so Steinbeck is actually working probably from some of Bab's notes. But Bab herself is actually from Oklahoma and integrates letters from her mother in her book. And what's, I think, useful about her book, not only because it's understudied and more recently published, although it was written in the 30s, um, is it's got a really different set of racial politics than The Grapes of Wrath. And I think it puts the racial politics of Grapes of Wrath and the gender politics of the Grapes of Wrath, and a different kind of relief. Um, Bab is interested in what she sees as a kind of partnership between people on the land and agriculture, um, whereas you get uh, a more settler-colonial framework in Grapes of Wrath, where um, you've got this moment where it talks about how uh, Grandpa killed Indians and Pa killed snakes, and that's why the land belongs to uh, the Jodes and in Babs, it's really set up as a kind of partnership of where both the land and the people have a kind of agency and ends up mar- um, mirroring the sort of more idealized relationships, the marriages between men and women in the book as sort of equal partnerships. So there's a difference in the sort of way that land is gendered um, and the way that relationships to the land are gendered in the two books. But there's also a really different racial um, ideology at work in the books because Babs leaders of her strike are a, a black man and a Filipino. Um, and she really puts a context where these white workers who are coming from Oklahoma undergo a kind of racial education in California and become aware of whiteness and become aware of the role that racial ideologies have in structuring society in a way they didn't have before, and then look to workers of color as the leaders um, who are going to have um, more experience and knowledge that they do than they do in fighting back, um, which is really distinct from Rapes of Wrath, where um, race operates more to affirm the whiteness of the Joes than to give any sort of leadership or full humanity to um, non-white peoples in the book. 
Am I too much of a conspiracy theorist to think that because Steinbeck may have known Bab's book was going to come out and was so similar to his that he had something to do with it being pulled or the schedule of it just being so similar? Like I was just so um, sad for Bab that her book did not get published until a year before she died. Yeah, I have not ever seen anything that, Nothing I've read on it um, has suggested that Steinbeck knew this was happening. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily go that route, that far, <laughs> that theory. Um, but I think it's interesting is that when Babs interviewed, when her book is published, and it is wonderful, at least that it was published, republished finally before she died. Um, mm-hmm. Her insistence was that it was a much better book than The Grapes of Wrath, and her answer as to why it was a better book was because it was more real. So she was really invested in, in a kind of realism and that she felt her book um, did a better job capturing the reality of that period of California agricultural history. Mm, that's so interesting. It was so interesting to see the juxtaposition. And you... And this, I think, is a strength of the book, is that you're taking all of these really interesting pieces of literature, some that we know very well if we're American readers, and some we may not know so well. And um, after talking about the Great Depression, um, you move into giving us a lot of information about um, Japanese authors uh, and Japanese literature, whether it's um, Rafu Shimpo, the Japanese um, newspaper published in California, or through this um, novel by um, Nakamura called Treadmill. And I just, I loved your chapters on Japanese American agrarianism and how it's expressed in literature and the kinds of themes it's tackling. So in that literature, how does that help us to see agricultural citizenship differently? So what I was really interested in with the chapters I have on that is thinking about um, the different ways that these authors responded and navigated the set of racial hierarchies and racial ideologies that existed in California at the moment, because it would be completely unfair to say that there is a Japanese American agrarianism that responds in a certain way. Um, that's not what's happening, but you do see in these texts different ways of navigating the same assumptions about race, nature, and citizenship. So you have some works, like a lot of the newspaper articles in these papers. These papers that I'm looking at are Los Angeles area Japanese-American newspapers. They run a page or two a day in English for the second generation, and they're covering agricultural history. They're covering what's going on in agriculture, and sometimes that's particular back-to-the-land movement where they're trying to convince um, these kids to come be farmers like their parents um, since they're because of racial discrimination, they're going to have a hard time getting jobs, doing other things. Sometimes they're covering the strikes that are happening in the 1930s. So I'm looking in this period of these papers from 1929 to when they shut down um, on the right before internment. Um, and they're really trying to claim a space for Japanese-Americans as the all-American farmer. They're really trying to make this case of expanding the all-American farmer, not just as the white farmer, but also as the Japanese-American farmer. And oftentimes they're doing this in this problematic way that's sort of suggesting 
um, an opposition between the Japanese American farmer and the Filipino farm worker or the Mexican farm worker, particularly in relationship with the strikes, where the papers are denying that any Japanese Americans are involved in the strikes, denying that any Japanese workers are involved in the strikes when um, that's simply not the case. Um, they're trying to create a sense of racial solidarity that trumps class solidarity and trying to um, change this image of the, the all-American farmer. And, of course, this isn't a successful strategy as um, the, the tragedy of internment um, of the sort of American concentration camp story tells us. But you also see other strategies being deployed by other authors. So in Treadmill, the author starts out, I mean, the narrative, it's written in a first, uh, a lot of it is sort of a stream of consciousness um, perspective from this particular character, this young woman, who starts out trying to be the all-American farmer, and her parents try to be the all-American farmer. And as they move through internment, they get more and more disillusioned. And by the end of the novel, it actually switches from a sort of more stream of consciousness to an epistolary form as the character is basically being deported from the United States um, to Japan. And the novel, I should say, is writ was written during internment by an internee. And so at the moment the novel is sort of finished, it's not the sort of longer history we have of sort of what um, happens at the camps isn't, isn't told in the same way it is. So there's this sense at the end of the book that there's these large scale deportations looming. Um, but this character ends up rewriting herself, not as an all American farmer, but as a sort of deterioralized international traveler who can kind of claim an ambassador um, ship as a way of claiming American identity. So only in sort of abandoning both the land and the body can this character achieve political belonging. Um, so it's sort of reckoning with the failure of this American agrarian ideology. Um, and then I also look at, in the following chapter, uh, Issa Yamamoto's short stories. Um, and she also is fascinating to me because she's living in these, in these Japanese-American farms in the 1930s, she's writing for these ethnic papers, um, although she's already more radical in the papers at this point. She's interned. She gets out of internment. She gets hired by the Los Angeles Tribune, um, a black newspaper when she moves back to Los Angeles, writes for them for several years, gets a major uh, fellowship at Stanford, turns it down to go live on a Catholic worker farm. Um, and it's in the period right before she turns on this fellowship and goes to the Catholic worker farm that she writes a lot of her most well-known short stories. Um, and yet the connection between her writing post-internment about pre-internment Japanese-American farm life while she's debating going off and living on this Catholic worker farm are really not talked about very much. Um, but what I find in terms of Japanese-American agrarianism interesting is that she is really trying to write back against the uh, agrarian citizenship that you see in the papers in the 1930s. Um, and in that context, you can really see the work that the kind of coalitions that get created between Filipino farmhands and a Japanese-American uh, female farmer. Um, in her texts, um, these sort of romantic ties that get embedded are also a sort of different kinds of coalitional politics that are getting expressed as another kind of agrarian citizenship, and I think actually kind of denaturalize the role of the all-American farmer in her work. Mm -hmm. And on this topic of coalitions... Um, chapter five, you take on, um, 
two people who are really well known for engaging in this sort of international or cross-border or interracial coalition building. And those two people are Carlos Bulusan and Ernesto Galarza. And for scholars of Filipino-American and Mexican-American history or studies um, or labor, I mean, these are two huge figures and you put them together in one chapter to talk about um, their respective books, America is in the Heart and Strangers in Our Fields. So what does this chapter bring to the table that's new in terms of critique and content when it comes to talking about these two really well-known books? I'm interested in both the way that these texts are anti-colonial texts, they're critiques of U.S. imperialism, and I'm interested in the way that both of these texts are also coming about in this era of human rights where human rights is given through the nation. So they're books that are critiquing colonialism in a language of, of nationhood. And so with America's in the Heart, I particularly became interested in it because of how much the text seemed to me to really be about land. Um, it's a book where the first third takes place in the Philippines and where the text really in some is trying to center the Philippines as the heart of America, um, American agricultural imperialism, that it's not a text that moves from the Philippines to the U.S. ideologically, although that is the path the character takes, but it always is making the Philippines reemerge in the landscapes of the United States. So that if you look at the descriptions of the American landscape, when Bolsonaro is say riding on a, or his character Carlos is riding on these freight trains, looking out, he constantly is reminded of particular moments in the Philippines, or then these moments when the characters are facing death, um, and then sort of remind, remember something from his childhood and something from the Philippines, um, particularly a sort of um, a landscape detail that often gives him the energy to escape, to flee, to live again. And so I read this text as an insistence on. Um, the Philippines is at the center of the story of American agriculture and recognizing American agriculture as itself an imperial venture. Strangers in Our Field is often, I mean, Galarza is celebrated for his transnational labor organizing, and that is certainly true, but there's something similar to the story I want to tell about Galarza and the story I tell about McWilliams, which is if you look at one particular text, you have to put that text in that person's larger story at a particular moment that it doesn't stand for their whole ideological trajectory. And Strangers in the Fields is really a text where Galarza captures through his sort of narrative giving up on transnational labor organizing as the primary solution to the problems um, we see in the Barcelona program and shifts more to a reassertion of borders and an interest in shutting down the Bracero program, a sort of ways in which what the U.S. needs um, is an end to the Bracero program and a recognition of Mexican-American workers as American workers. And what Braceros need in Strangers in Our Field is to return to Mexico. And in the book, they sort of gain citizenship and voice and power by returning to Mexico. So there's a way in which Galarza's transnational approach gets almost sort of seduced by the call of, of nationalism in this period, um, which exists, of course, for very particular moments in the ways in which um, this is a moment in which there's many Bracero program contracts right, where things get renegotiated at the federal level. And this is after power moves even further away from Mexico 
to um, U.S. growers. Um, so there's reasons why Galarza is disillusioned. But I think the book really marks a transition moment for him. Um, and it's important to pay attention to these transition moments and the ways that texts capture those um, those moments of ideological contradiction, not just their their larger trajectory, because it helps us understand how to be more effective um, in our own movements, in our own movements, and the ways that different kinds of rhetorics can appeal to us as effective, but might have political consequences that we're not grappling with. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one big problem that Galarza was running into at this time, and the reason he becomes so disillusioned is because he sees how difficult it is just to organize domestic citizen farm workers, let alone guest workers who are already so treated as commodities, right? As, um, you know, housed in the same buildings as their tools. They're just, you know, implements of labor. And I think that was a big reason why he decides to sort of say strangers in our fields. Um, these are particular fields for particular people. Um, and these guest workers should return home to reclaim um, power that they're losing because of this immense greed and profit driven um, industry of agriculture. Right. I mean, it's that that's one of the reasons that he's, he kind of gives up on that transnational organizing. Yes. It's, it's a moment in which he, changes the political direction what he thinks the way he was going isn't going to work so he's going to use this different rhetoric and i think that this shift to this rhetoric i mean really sets up the anti-immigration policies of the ufw it has consequences but it doesn't occur in a bubble there's reasons galarza is doing this and he's articulating what he's, he wants within a framework that he thinks is going to be effective and he certainly doesn't further dehumanize the Barceros while he's doing this. I mean, I think one of the things that's really noteworthy about strangers in our field is that even though it's pursuing this vision of um, problem solving where Americans, where U S Americans work in California fields and Mexicans go back to Mexico, it does so in a way where it insists on the agency and humanity of, the workers he wants to put back in Mexico, um, even if he does so in a way in which he gives them more voice and um, more masculinity, even in the way he represents them in Mexico than he represents them in the United States. Where at one point he calls them chickens in another rooster's yard to give you an example of that gendered language, right? Where um, America, American workers are the rooster and male Mexican braceros are sort of the chickens in another rooster's yard. Mm hmm. And speaking of non-human creatures, um, we can move to Rachel Carson, um, juxtaposed with Cesar Chavez and the UFW, right? Moving into the 60s, into the beginning of, you know, the environmental movement, um, you, your chapter, your sixth chapter um, called Elixirs of Death is um, situating these two um, figures in the environmental justice movement, one from the viewpoint of um, pesticides are harming non-human creatures and our environment and, you know, harming humans equally to Cesar Chavez, Dolores Huerta, Larry Itliong and the U- United Farm Workers Union or UFW, um, who are basically saying, yes, pesticides are affecting the food that we're eating and the workers who are 
um, laboring to bring that food to your table. Um, but there is this awareness on the part of the UFW that um, environmental injustice is harming certain people more than others. It's sort of this unequal, unbalanced harm that Carson is not acknowledging in her work. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, uh, the 1960s are a really interesting time to think about California agriculture because the the what we get called the modern environmental movement um, is really happening at the same time as the United Farm Workers is happening. So the first Earth Day in 1970 right, corresponds, uh, it's just right before the signing um, of a bunch of, con- of the, the big contract signing. When you think about um, 1962 as the sort of key year in which um, Carson publishes Silent Spring, and you think of that as also the year in which Chavez quits uh, working um, on sort of community organizing in Los Angeles and says, I'm going to start doing this. I want to start organizing farm workers. But these two stories are really entangled with one another, but they're often told really separately. And I think that's really striking in terms of pesticides. So that I have sat in environmental studies classrooms and heard the story of Silent Spring leading to this federal ban on DDT. And I have, you know, this sat in rooms on where we're talking about Latino studies, the framework where Chavez gets credited and the UFW gets credited with the federal ban on DDT. Um, and the stories don't end up tied together, even though the UFW is involved in planning the first Earth Day and is very strategic about how it's reaching out to environmentalists. So there's both a difference in the rhetoric that the UFW uses and the rhetoric that's being used in Silent Spring, but there's also a a way in which the movements are not in silos. They're responding to each other. And so the way that the discourse around race and nature and citizenship changes through the 1960s and the 1970s is in part because of the relationship between these two movements and the way they're each shaping and responding to each other's rhetoric um, in ways I think that's really apparent if you look at uh, a lot of the uh, different kinds of UFW texts, so not just the speeches of Chavez, but the pamphlets, the plays that El Teatro Campesino is putting out that's creating um, a different story about race and the environment that environmentalists are picking up at. So if you think about the nature writer, Peter Matheson, writes the first mainstream profile of Chavez that gets picked up by the New Yorker and becomes the book Salse Puedes. And so there's also from the very, from very early on uh, an environmentalist fascination with Chavez um, that both feeds into the UFW, but is also doing something slightly different with its understanding of race and the environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, and the, you're right. These two strands of the environmental movement, you really see the differences in the ways um, that they do not come together, that at some moments they are talking to each other, but at other moments are so distant. So for instance, the Sierra Club wanted nothing to do with the UFW, right? Um, they wouldn't donate to the cause um, because they just did not want to get involved in those issues of labor. Um, but as we move you know, into the later 20th century, now in the 21st, our food movement, our anti-pesticide movement, our environmental movements, um, do you think those different movements and discourses are coming together in more productive ways? Or do you think that they're very distant from each other because, you know, these buzzwords of organic and local and sustainable um, and that we want to eat in the farm to table style. We want to be buying food from small local producers because we think um, that that's more just and that's more 
um, healthy, not only for us, but for workers. Is that true? How are we understanding food and labor now? Um, and how is that different from the ways in which discourses around health, human health, um, and the health of the land and the health of the people involved in agriculture? Um, how is it different now than it was back then? I think that a lot of the contemporary food movement discourse erases workers, um, and it focuses on the power of consumers in a way that not only erases the presence of farm workers, um, undocumented farm workers, migrant farm workers on local and organic farms um, as part of not just part of the industrial food system, um, but focuses on consumers as having the power to make the changes that ignore the possibility for the voices and agency of of worker movements, right? Where it doesn't, um, so you think about something like Omnivore's Dilemma, Michael Pollan's book, where there's a lot of attention to different kinds of farming, and yet farm workers appear only as sort of nameless people in the background at industrial farms, suggesting that these undocumented workers are mere symptoms of the problems of industrial agriculture rather than giving them a place at the table. Um, and this is a book that wants to grapple with the full karmic price of our meals and yet never really grapples with the role of, of farm workers, of factory workers in the food system and then suggests that sort of consumers have the power to produce one kind of agriculture or another. And it sets up this opposition between industrial agriculture and non-industrial agriculture that thinks about workers as abused under industrial agriculture without even imagining them as existing in, um, in a sort of idealized local sustainable agriculture um, in really problematic ways. And I think if you look at, far- I mean, there's a lot of work on farm workers and a lot of farm worker movements that are continuing as well as larger food system workers um, movements. And I'm thinking in, in, in Portland, there's a the Burgerville, which is a local fast food chain. Their workers are trying to unionize. There's a lot of fast food workers across the nation are involved in um, movement building as well as farm workers. And so where do their stories fit in and where does their power fit? If we see the consumers having all the power and the solution in being in these landscapes that have no workers, it's just rendering those workers who do exist. If you look at a book like Margaret Lay's Gray's Labor in the Locavore, um, you can see that you do have these workers on local farms, on non-organic farms, and that maybe what we need to do isn't try to erase their existence, but give more power to them. So I think there's a possibility of coalition building, but I think that too much of the local food movement puts consumers' health and consumers' desires at the forefront um, and sidelines producers. Um, and there's ways I think you can get around that that are more modeled after the UFW. So the boycott on Wendy's by the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, the coffer boycott on Driscoll's by farm workers up and down the West Coast, those are moments that are asking for solidarity between consumers and producers and recognizing people as not just being consumers or producers, um, but as having the ability to inhabit both. Um, and I, but I think that's really different from what an organization like Slow Food USA might be calling for or what an organization like Whole Food or a corporation like Whole Foods or Chipotle might be envisioning when they sort of suggest this. If you eat well, it's good for you. It's good for the planet and it's pleasurable. Right. Mm-hmm. 
This kind of reminds me of what Upton Sinclair had to go through or what he felt was the unintended consequence of writing The Jungle, right? Hitting the American public in the stomach, but not in the heart like he intended. So we're, you know, made to think as consumers about what's healthy, what is going in our bodies that's um, going to be good or bad for us. But what about the bodies of the people who are harvesting, who are working incredibly long shifts in order to bring us um, the food and the wine that we're having all the time? Um, I think we still have a long way to go when it comes to, like you said, bringing those two discourses, both connected to the land, but in very different ways, um, the food versus the labor it takes to get that food to us. And your conclusion, I thought, was very um, evocative and provocative. Um, you're talking about this, you're asking readers to imagine, you know, this kind of political belonging that can take place outside of land ownership and outside of the boundaries of legal citizenship. And you use um, the monarch butterfly to talk about migration, to talk about um, how someone can belong to land, to earth, um, but without having to endure the the marginalization that comes with being denied substantial citizenship, whether that's legal or social. Can you end by talking about um, the figure of the butterfly? Yes. Well, I've been fascinated for a while about the use of the monarch butterfly and butterfly wings at immigrant and migrant rights protests um, and the sort of claim that it's not citizenship in the nation that's natural, but it's migration that's natural. But one of the things that's also fascinated me about that is that the choice of the monarch butterfly and the choice of the butterfly is choosing a creature who is itself known for um, being threatened that's known for this sort of anxiety about what climate change is going to do to it, whether we, you know, we should be planting milkweed, whether, um, you know, the WTO, there were people with costume butterfly wings on the WTO kills butterflies, that there's a long history of environmental anxiety about the butterfly. And what does it mean for the migrant rights movement to be aligning itself with this creature that is itself threatened? Um, and I think it suggests the possibility and the existence of an ecological politics within the migrant rights movement. And that when we look about alternatives to environmental politics, that we shouldn't just be looking to mainstream environmentalists, but you look at the leaders of the People's Climate March, the organizations that marched at the front of the march in September 2014 in New York City, and you see um, domestic laborers associations, you see immigrant rights organizations you see indigenous people's organization and there's an ecological politics within those organizations and their understanding of migration in relationship to race and nature and neoliberal economics that has a nuance, um, which a lot of mainstream environmentalist organizations could certainly learn from. Well, I hope, you know, this gets more people to, Take a look at your book. I think it's like so appealing for so many different types of scholars, not only working in literature and literary critique, but also history, immigration, race, gender, citizenship, agriculture. I mean, scholars of all of these fields should take a look at this book. So again, um, it's titled The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship and Farming Since the Dust Bowl out of University of Washington Press. And Sarah Wald is an assistant professor of English 
and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. Sarah, thank you so much for talking with me about your book today. Um, it was really fun getting to hear more about your thoughts and your process and all of this different great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>